With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview experts and discuss the issues and news relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say a big hello and welcome to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hello, Patrick. How are you today? Things are well here in Frigid, Texas. <laughs> you're you're always... Uh, I, I like we get the weather update over there. Okay. <laughs> Well, this week's episode number 31 is uh, basically we're going to talk about the early days of SOCOM integration of small unmanned aircraft systems with our guest, small unmanned aircraft system entrepreneur and former Navy SEAL John Sermont. There's a boatload of material to go over here, so we're going to go long on this show. We're going an hour. But before we get into it with our guest, I want to talk uh, about what Gene was doing last week. Gene, we missed you here on the program. What were you doing last week? We were testing sensors, sensors, and more sensors. We spent working pretty hard trying to identify actual fire and flames from the air. And uh, most people don't know. They think, sure, that's easy. Let's go for a FLIR camera, and, you know, we're done. But most people don't know that a FLIR towel or a photon will actually saturate at 160 degrees because they've been calibrated to look for humans at 100 degrees. So, you know, when you point them at a fire or you point them at uh, the, the hood of a black pickup truck here in Texas in August, you get the same signature. So we've been experimenting with uh, putting neutral density filters in front of our Taze Duo lenses, and we've gone from a half to a full one, uh, number one neutral density, and we've made significant progress on that. We actually did get to light a fire here in Texas uh, that was controlled by the way, and uh, we flew it, and uh, we could see the flames really well, and uh, it was a big step forward for us, and uh, the fire research is going well. So uh, right in the middle of the podcast, I was going to try to call in, but uh, we had launched, and uh, I was doing my piloting duties, and I, I just couldn't break away in time to, uh, to to get in on the podcast and uh, executed the flight and managed to land things and keep it all in one piece, so we were pretty happy with that. That's that was my week all week last week. Well, it sounds interesting, and uh, yeah, I figured uh, when you didn't call in, you had your hands full. No big deal, you know. We gotta you gotta pay the rent, as it were. So, uh, but that's good. You come back here, you kind of tell us, um, give us some insight, and that is funny that you mention that. Uh, you know, the white screen. <laughs> what's what's wrong here? <laughs> but, so you know, those are, those are, that's the type of tips you get here at uh, the on the SUS News podcast. So you know, maybe hopefully you've uh, helped some people in the future with that. Anything else in the news catch your eye, Gene? Well, there's uh, one little bit of news that I'd like to throw out there. You know, as you know, the the book First to Deploy has been out, and uh, I've been notified that uh, it's going to be used as the uh, basis for. Um, the, the UAS concentration for Atlanta State University, and they plan to use the book to uh, do their U.S. operations capstone course, which uh, I'm pretty excited about. And uh, one of the tasks that they are going to put in their curriculum is that you have to use a small unmanned aircraft in a search and rescue scenario. So I'm pretty excited about that one. Uh, I'm going to work with those guys over there and see if I can help them out. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously we've got a few more scenarios we could go through and we could give them uh, a bunch of different environments to operate in and, and make it a, a little bit of a challenge. So I'm pretty excited about that. Well, that sounds good. Uh, that's always a positive thing. 
Um, you know, so that's good news. I, we should do a little story about that on the uh, on the homepage. I think. I think so. I would. I, I like to hear stuff like that. I like success stories. Makes me feel all warm and cozy. Well, I've got some news, and uh, it's about uh, we 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 landed a sponsor for the podcast, and I'm going to read this now. Today's podcast is sponsored by Hood Technology, experts in advanced EOIR gyro stabilized four-axis imaging systems for small unmanned aircraft systems. The company offers low swap payloads, integrating EO, MWIR, and lasers to provide unparalleled long-range imaging for moving platforms. I'd like everyone to visit www.hoodtech.com for more information. That's H-O-O-D-T-E-C-H.com for more info. And uh, that makes me warm and fuzzy, too. Uh, Hopefully, uh, our listeners will go out there and look at that. They've got some good uh, sensors and some other products and an interesting website. All right. So, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just glad glad to welcome uh, Hood Technologies onto the podcast. Me too. Um, you know, I'm I'm glad that we we got somebody on here to uh, help um, you know move things along. So with that, let's move into segment one. Now, as usually the case here, the guests are known to the hosts on the program, and uh, this case is the same. I've known uh, our guest, John, for a few years and have followed his progress in trying to bring a uh, small UAS product to market. Um, John, I know you, but could you please give the audience a little bio about yourself and how you got uh, to where you are today? Oh, sure, Patrick and uh, and Gene. Thanks for having me this morning. And uh, I'll tell you that the weather here in San Diego, California, is, as always, beautiful. So, Gene, I feel for you down there in Texas. Um, You know, I'll say that the – I'll kind of start – here. And I think the, the reason that I, uh, I, I talked to you, Patrick, and offered to come on and, and do a podcast with you is because I feel like uh, there's, there's not really a lot of um, progress uh, right now in the effort to open up the national airspace and integrate these small unmanned systems from a commercial point of view. I'm talking a true commercial industry uh, being developed, and I think that's, that's the interest that I have and the intention uh, around me joining you on your program. Um, I'll actually say that presently um, I'm running a small company focused on uh, bringing the light of an air system to market, and we'll probably want to talk about that a bit later. The company's uh, called Soft Coast. But I'll, I'll kind of go back uh, and, and just let you know that I spent about 14 years uh, in uh, the military as a special operations uh, member, uh, specifically with uh, Naval Special Warfare or SEAL Team. And, you know, the first uh, period of my career uh, I spent as a, not only as a SEAL operator, but as a communicator. And I can tell you that in, in, in that period of time, and, and, and my career actually spanned uh, pre-9-11 as well as post-9-11, so I kind of I have a, a, a flavor for both uh, eras, if you will, if you want to call them that. Um, what, I, what I think is, is interesting here is, is when I was working with technology as an end user or SEAL, um, you know, communications almost seemed magical to a lot of SEALs. And it, it was kind of like the way, the way you ended up becoming a communicator in SEAL team was, hey, new guy, go get that radio and figure out how to turn it on. And uh, so that's basically what happened. It wasn't like, hey, John you know, uh, has this intelligence quotient or he's a really smart guy, he knows what he's doing. It's just I happened to be standing next to the radio, and I was the newest guy on the team, so bam, there I am. So I actually am a pretty curious guy by nature, and so I started, you know, and basically I didn't want to let anybody down. I didn't want to be that guy that didn't know how to do what I was supposed to be doing. And so when you're the guy carrying the phone, so to speak, uh, when somebody tells you to, to make a phone call, you better make a phone call and it better work, right? Because everybody's looking at you at that point. Right. <laughs> so I ended up learning about communications and understanding about theory. And then as I progressed through my career, I began to, to really understand shortfalls. And, and it wasn't like I had a magic pill in my rucksack that I could just pull out and solve everybody's problems. There were moments where the light was on me, and I literally was having to you know, at the time, I, I actually, we, we did HF for high-frequency communications. I'm not sure if anybody's doing that anymore. We did an old school, a PRC-104, right, dialing up 
HF frequencies do, looking at propagation tables and ionospheric right, disturbances and sunspots and solar activity to figure out how to communicate long range to somebody uh, because you know, access to satellite communication systems or global you know, commercial or military was, was you know, really uh, limited. Uh, so the point is, is breakdowns or problems uh, as a communicator Right, was something that I, I learned uh, and kind of was ingrained in me really early on in my career, and I always carried that with me. And I also I kind of got patted on the back a little bit every once in a while because I was willing to open the manual, RTFM, right, and just actually see right how the devices work. And then I was curious enough to start talking to the engineers and the companies that built these radio systems and ask them questions. And I remember them telling me, you know, we've never had anybody right as an operator want to talk to us. About anything, and I said, "Well, I think I can wear your pocket protector, so we can actually communicate and get along just fine. So I don't really have any issue at all." And really, it was just because I wanted to be good at my job. Well, let's fast forward uh, a, a, a few years later, where you know, 9/11 happens, and you know, I was part of a, a, a team that went forward into Afghanistan, and one of the problems that we had in Afghanistan was communications. And I remember, like, there was a moment where I remember just, like, around me, we, I, I think, and this is me guessing, trying to figure out how many people were actually supporting my small team on the ground of about 12 guys, maybe 16 guys, um, in, in some part of Afghanistan, uh, you know, per- performing, right, one of the tasks or the missions that we had been assigned. Um, and I think there were probably 150 people right, around us to support 16 guys on the ground. And I can remember, like, there were airplanes, big, heavy, you know, uh, fixed-wing aircraft of all kinds of sizes and speeds that were literally circling overhead, and we were literally just sitting in one spot, right, doing something we were supposed to be doing. And I remember thinking, good grief, that's the only way I can communicate is talking to these, like, 15 people flying around in this $40 million aircraft over my head. There's got to be a simpler way because this isn't scalable. You know, I'm tip of the spear. I'm with special operations. I'm a SEAL. What about the average soldier, right, the average, uh, and, I don't, and I don't mean to, to, to denigrate or, or anything. I mean, I, I, I hold them in the highest regard. And, and what about the, the, the conventional general purpose force uh, end user? He's not going to, you know, they're just not enough to go around for everybody to get, right, 150 people supporting them on every operation they're going to be conducting. And remember, we were very early on, so we didn't have the big, you know, uh, established force uh, on the ground in Afghanistan yet. It was really kind of the Wild West, and we were kind of there fending for ourselves and doing, you know, doing our jobs accordingly. Right. It was so, so Wild West. Point, yeah, it was, it was the Wild West. And so at Weren't you guys point, riding horses? Well, I wasn't. It was that was that was a, a team that came on, you know, came in earlier, and you know, I, I don't comment about other people's stuff. But uh, the point is, that wasn't my group. We actually had vehicles, but they were thin-skinned vehicles. We didn't have any armor. I can remember actually, you know, taping, uh, you know, whatever body armor we had, like taping it to our seats and taping it around us to, to kind of just, you know, <laughs> to provide. I think it, it wasn't going to help us at all. It was just going to, you know, make me feel better about the. You know, driving around there, at least I could pretend that I was going to be okay if something happened. Right. Sometimes anyway, feeling good is, is is half of the deal right there. But well, this well, is fascinating. motivation is better than no motivation, Patrick. That's what I used to say. Exactly. Well, like you know, I mean, this is all really uh, this background is really uh, fascinating. But uh, you know, I mean, as you came into this, uh, you know, I could see you you had this communications background and um, you know integrating new technologies. I mean, when when small unmanned aircraft showed up to you, uh, what 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 were your first impressions? Well, first of all, we didn't know what it was, A, and didn't know what to call it, B, and uh, it, it it kind of was. You know, it was it was looked at as oh gosh, just another you know get gadget we're gonna have to carry around that you know you know you have to have a PhD to figure out how to operate. So we ended up you know the way the way things usually work, it's whoever is standing closest to the box basically gets tagged. And I happened to be you know standing near the box, and they said, hey, Sermon, you're kind of you're kind of a smart guy. You kind of got you know the ability to turn on a radio. So why don't you figure out how to use that too? And, you know, me being curious, I basically said, sure, but let me take a step back. 
as I started to kind of look at this um, airplane, as it were, in a box, um, I started thinking about RC, right? So I immediately associated this small drone with an RC aircraft. It was just kind of you, know, you try to you try to figure out where to start when you when you don't know where to begin, right? And so where I started was okay, these little drone air, these little small RC aircraft. This kind of looks like that too. Maybe I should learn how to fly an RC aircraft first. And so believe it or not, my initial drone quote unquote training was actually I went and found a couple of old guys at a local RC airfield and said, hey, guys, you know, talk to me about flying an RC airplane. And so <laughs> then, I, then I went to my chain of command and I said, hey, listen, you know, this flying this RC aircraft is, is, is a lot of work, and I'm kind of concerned about it. And they said, well, you know, try this, try this thing over here. They, they, they say that they've removed all of, the, all of that stuff. You don't have to know how to fly the airplane. You just basically throw it in the air and you're okay. And so I said, fine. And so... We basically it was literally it was like it was like cavemen looking at you know, looking at a fire. It's like oh okay, let's see what we can do with it. And believe it or not, they just gave me the equipment, and I literally was just taking it out to the RC flying field and operating it and learning how to fly it and break it and repair it. And there was no I didn't have I didn't know what an FSR was. There was no instructor on scene with me. It was just a box of stuff and me kind of out there figuring it out. And frankly, you know, in some ways, I just, I think the, what I learned as a SEAL was, you know, learn to figure it out and, and be confident in your ability to adapt and overcome. And, and I, so I just, in my mind, I decided that I was going to figure this out no matter what and then committed and went to it and then, you know, took a lot of, a lot of time and a lot of mistakes, a lot of breaking stuff, but I did. Well, and and that's you know it's kind of interesting because you know I get uh, I kind of uh, had the same start, but it you know a little bit different and same deal you know you experiment you see what you can do you learn the system, um, and and so like I guess you know the next was it uh, when you finally took it out in the field you you finally you're like okay well. I kind of know what this thing can do. I know what the cone of view of the camera is, and uh, I'm going to take it out in the field, and I'm going to see what I can do with it. Was it something that uh, paid off straight away, or was it something that you had to develop the capability? Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Well, so that's uh, that, that right there is a great question, Patrick, and I, I'll tell you, <laughs> in the beginning... I kind of chuckle when I say this because I thought it was going to be just, hey, figure out how to fly it and everything else will fall into place. But what I, what I didn't realize was flying it wasn't the point, right? And so in the very beginning, once I figured out how to uh, actually fly and I started looking through the camera, I started realizing what, how powerful it was to be able to get, you know, in real time an aerial perspective or point of view so you, you can actually start monitoring and observing activity you know, from a point of view that I've never had before. And so it was, uh, it was actually breathtaking and game-changing. And I can remember being so excited, and I remember bringing it back, and I was telling anybody that would listen to me and talking about it. I was dragging the boxes around. Hey, look at this. You guys got to see this. I can, I can remember, you know, and by the way, SEALs, in the special operations community, you're in three states in general. You're either getting qualified, um, performing right your task operationally, or uh, and, and degrading qualifications um, or resetting. And so, you know, everybody's you know working on chasing falls and staying qualified. So people have things to do, and I'm like stopping them in the compound. Hey, look at this! Take a look at this, guys. This is so great. And people will be like, Johnny, you're so excited about it. That's great. Really don't understand what you're talking about. Don't have a lot of time, but hey, man, uh, you know, catch me later. And so I remember almost becoming a little bit of an advocate, right, for these small systems and trying to take them to anybody that, that would pay attention. And I do, you know, I do remember uh, talking with one of my um, commanders at the time, and he basically, and I was complaining to him. I'm like, hey, sir, nobody will listen to me. Like this is groundbreaking technology, but no, I can't get anybody's attention. He said, you know, John. Maybe what we need to do is have some an officer like like aviator guy show up and help you kind of advance this, and he can actually go to the the meetings and sit in these different kinds of 
meetings and, and inform people and kind of work on top down and you can work on bottom up. And so I said, great. So long story short, they then staffed me with uh, somebody who was scheduling aviation assets for the for the entire uh, you know West Coast community. Uh, they call him an air scheduler. Um, and so he kind of got involved. And then when he started looking at it, he started getting really excited. And so now you had two guys, right? And then as he got excited, he basically said, hey, John, you just need to go beg, borrow, and steal. We need to start building a cadre and start training people up and, so, and get some money so we can get some more gear and, and start making the improvements because they're not quite ready to deploy yet. But, boy, there's a great capability here, a great opportunity. And so that's that, that bringing that next person on board, Patrick, was critical because that doubled, frankly, that doubled our quote-unquote organization. We weren't official in any way. There was no funding line. There was no program. There was nothing in place except two guys and a little bit of what we call top cover in the military with some, some great leaders above us that gave us the opportunity to try right, to build something special. And that's, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know what? As you were as you were going through that and talking about some of that, I I, I want to give Gene an opportunity to jump in here because uh, I, I had a lot of those same parallel feelings. And Gene, I, I know that you shared some of those. Would you like to comment on that? I I had to laugh at some of the things that uh, that John was talking about. I mean, it, because you're right, John. You get that next person involved, and your force just doubles. And you, you've actually got somebody who will help you promote or, you know, actually spread the word so that other people can understand better what these small unmanned aircraft can, can give them out in the field. So that was, you were right on target. I, I just, I thought that was such a, a, a good point to make, but it has been a very slow but sure kind of progression to the point where people are finally starting to understand what we really can do with these small unmanned aircraft, don't you think? Uh, well, it, yeah. it, oh, I'm sorry, Patrick. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, go ahead. Uh, you you can go ahead, and I'll I'll have comment okay. after. Go for Well, all I was going to say, Gene, was um, I I so I asked one of my bosses at the time. I said, Hey, sir, I, I'm 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 honored, right? Because I think this is going to be big. And I remember telling that. You know, this is o three o four time frame, and I can remember him looking at me and, and saying, it, it could be big, John, if the right people are involved. Right? He said it could fall apart and disappear if they're not. And he said we need people with the intelligence, but we also need people with that energy right, to, to, to generate interest and, and help people become believers right, in this kind of technology. So, you know, the, the point here is, is you've got a lot of people involved and stakeholders in, in, in these silos is what I like to, like to say. There were kind of these silos of influence silos of, uh, uh, of interest, silos of practice. And you know, there were kind of three circles, and at the time they were, not, they were kind of loosely orbiting around each other, but they weren't really connected um, to, to really drive things forward. And I think in some ways it's almost like conception. It's, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, of biology and chemistry and putting everything together, right, in physics, and then some of it is frankly just luck. Um, and it's it, it you know it just kind of it takes form and takes shape and then you know you have a starting point, um, kind of a spark and an idea in somebody's head and then you put it in somebody else's head and then you actually start putting things in action. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the things that that I realized looking back is because you know SEAL Team, Naval Special Warfare, and even the Special Operations Community at large, I can't speak of any other components because I wasn't a member of the uh, the Army or the Air Force or anybody else. But I can talk about maybe in the SEAL team, there is an entrepreneurial kind of mentality. In other words, figure it out, get it done, accomplish the mission, take care of each other along the way, and, you know, and rinse and repeat and keep doing it. And so I think there, because of that kind of um, entrepreneurial uh, mindset, and, and by the way, SEALs are trusted by the leadership. And so we do have autonomy, and, you know, it's not like we have to report and everybody's checking, doing head counts all the time. I mean, obviously there's good order and discipline uh, as a military unit, but you do have some flexibility and some latitude. And I was given, as they say, lots and lots of rope, and I was told, 
John, run as fast as you can, as far as you can. Break it. We'll buy more. Do what you need to do. And if we need to pull you back, we will. But you need to go. We don't know how far we can go with this. And you need to tell us. You need to show us the way. And, and that's, that was my direction. And by golly, the leadership continued to just show up and support right, myself. And then eventually my boss that came in, and then he started to, to really right, staff us, uh, work with the vendors, uh, work with the, the military uh, the program, you know, manager types, um, uh, uh, generating requirements, current requirements from current operations, and then feeding those into the loop. And, you know, there was a, a point where we as SEALs and our, our community were, were essentially kind of driving a lot of the early small unmanned systems developmental efforts in the form of articulating requirements, uh, articulating what works, what doesn't work uh, with the different vendors. And there was a really great feedback loop where we could immediately talk to the vendor. They could show us what they're working on. We could take it out and use it. And then we could say whether it's working or not working or things that might need to be changed. And, you know, I learned later on that, you know, we weren't the only people doing that, right? But because there's these different silos at the time, you know, the Army and uh, some folks out at Natick were working on some things. Uh, some folks on the East Coast were working on some things. And eventually, right, parochial interests notwithstanding and kind, and kind of put aside, there's still a little bit of that. Maybe there, there always will be because, you know, we feel very strongly about our quote-unquote families. Uh, but, but eventually we kind of put those things aside and came together uh, after a heck of a lot of work and a, and a lot of uh, healthy debate. You know, they were controversial. The, the, the whole idea of the small unmanned system was controversial in the beginning. Initially, it wasn't taken uh, seriously. And then at some point, it began to be taken seriously, and then it kind of became controversial. And the, the birth of small unmanned systems in the military is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a fascinating story. And I do think at some point in time, you know, somebody needs to, to do what they can to collect all of those true stories and not polished, you know, not cleaned up or filtered. I mean, just the individual effort uh, across the military, air, you know, area of, uh, of uh, practice, there were people that were putting their careers on the line, putting their reputations at stake because they believed in this technology, and boy, I'm glad they did. And, and it, it's refreshing for me to kind of go back and think about that because there was an energy, an interest, an optimism, and a belief, right, in the, that this would benefit the end user on the ground. And I believe, you know, history will show us that it does and will continue to. And the focus, you know, my focus was small systems. I'm not an expert or a practitioner with large systems. And when I say a large system, anything kind of above the 15 to 20-pound range that's not my bag because I'm focused on guys and girls, right, that can actually, that are carrying stuff around in a box or a bag, right, and they're out kind of by themselves and they're what I would consider to be a tactical kind of user and they need the lightest weight, smallest stuff. And for me, I think that that is still really important for that end user, but I actually think because of the small size, that actually has a, a great, uh, potential and prospect and promise for the commercial market here in the United States. I mean, I'm not advocating for a Volkswagen-sized thing to be flying around over neighborhoods, right, without right. any kind of, you know, oversight or flight planning, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that there are small technologies. I think there's it's almost like an over overkill to eliminate any possible risk with anything, Therefore, the small systems by are guilty by association, and I kind of think that that's that's misguided. It may be um, well-meaning, but I definitely think it's it's caused all kinds of uh, gnashing of teeth, as you will. Yeah. Now, and a lot of those points you made. I mean, I'm sitting here uh, nodding the head, and I know Gene's nodding the head, and there are a lot of parallels between the uh, the commercial world and the military world. It's kind of funny you say that. Uh, it, it's part of my advocacy work back. I think it was 2004 or five, talking to a government guy from DOD and saying, "Hey, you know." 
Uh, same thing. This this technology, this small unmanned aircraft, has a lot of potential at the squad level or for people on the ground. And uh, you know, the guy disagreeing with me. Ah, uh, you know, well, those guys don't well, know what they need. Well, Patrick, yeah. so let's let let's let me qualify that. So, in some in some ways, he was right, and in some ways, you were right. So both. See, here's the thing: there were there were both positions were right because. When it was so new that guys were still trying to figure out how to use it. Now, let me explain to you. As a SEAL, you you have to be very careful about what kind of tools you're even going to expend energy to learn to use, right? Your mm-hmm. primary tasks are to shoot, move, and communicate. If you've got an, a, a, something else that you need to be worrying about, that means that you're going to have to switch contexts and you're going to have to add an additional task, which is actually going to degrade your ability to perform the three primary tasks that you have, right? Mm-hmm. That's, a long, that's a long way of saying there were a lot of guys looking at this box of stuff and listening to me talk about how great it was, telling me, that's great, John, so now I've got to take a guy off a gun so they can actually fly the remote control airplane around? Are you kidding me? And so there was a huge debate inside the organization, and frankly, I, I, I understood both sides of it. And so, you know, my position was, hey, this is worth figuring out, right, how to integrate and incorporate into our organization. And, you know, kind of where we started was this small stuff, and then, you know, small things at the time were limited, right, in their range, in their performance, in their survivability, uh, and actually the payload uh, capability. And what I mean by that, when you're talking about activity-based information gathering, uh, you, you know, you need a certain level of fidelity. You need to be able to see, like, mm-hmm. uh, to, to a certain extent. And, you know, specifics are not, not, not important in this case. Um, and I think that, you know, you end up having to work with what you can fly around in that small uh, form factor. And so that means that sometimes you have to fly lower, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or you, you you know you have to you ha- you're limited by the range of the radio or something and so you got to fly lower and now you're flying lower over an area and you're making some noise and then people are like like wait a minute that's not going to work either so what do you do and so that then that then goes back into the loop right so you then tell the vendor here's where we're at this is the feedback that we're getting. And, you know, they continued to, to work on, on things. And then we also, our, one of our responsibilities was to develop, I think the um, kind of one generation would call them SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures, and then another right. generation or era would call them TCPs, or Techniques, Tactics, and Procedures. And it's very important to understand that, you know, MFP-11, Special Operations Command, and Naval Special Warfare, who's under, underneath the Special Operations Command, um, is is funded through MFP $11, um, and, you know, we protect, as an organization, we protect our techniques, tactics, and procedures. I'm not going to comment about what's happening in the media. That's, frankly, none of my business, and I'm not my, not my purview, but what I will say is it's, it's um, very bad optics and very dangerous for us to publicly talk about our, you know, specific tactics and procedures around anything and especially you know right. how we might employ technology. Agree right. Yeah, we agree with now, that one too. And I'll, and I'll just say that it's kind of like, you know, a professional football team telegraphing a play before they actually call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're going to get they're going to get their clock cleaned, right, if they do that. And nobody complains nobody complains about Bill Belichick. How come he's not telling the world his play? Right? Why do people feel like they need this complete transparency with, um, you know, our special operations professionals and what they're doing? So I think there's a bit of naivety. I think there's a little bit of a kind of a fetishization of the military, and you know, SEALs kind of seem to be the uh, the trendy topic of the day, and that will pass. I hope, um, and we'll kind of go back to doing what we need to be doing and uh, and quietly uh, being the professionals that we are have been. Uh, are and always will be. So the point here is there's a reason why that person disagreed with you, Patrick, and he may have not been able to get into all the details, and then there's a reason why, you know, you kind of said, wait a minute, and and didn't get quite into all these details with him. 
And so over time, an enormous amount of effort, and, and what's really important is it, there was a point where it became less about technology and more about people and organizations and structure and in integration. And that, that's a turning point. It's, monument, it's a monumental turning point because people can, can start to still think, well, I've got to build the technology. I've got to perfect the technology. If I could just make it do this, if I could just make it do that, and they completely forget, right, about the human being, right? And they think it's just about the, the drone or the robot or the, the, the widget. And it really took some discipline and courage and a heck of a lot of effort for leaders inside of the military and even leaders in industry, uh, folks that are, are, are program managers and officers uh, for the government itself to actually come together and really uh, kind of walk through lessons learned and kind of own um, shortfalls. And, and what really kept showing up was, guys, the technology is on this ridiculous pace it's just getting better and better and better. So from a technology perspective, it makes sense for us to continue to invest. But by golly, we don't just want to invest in the technology. We need the capability. So we've got to really get clear on how we can effectively utilize these kinds of technologies. And then there were questions about, is it the right size? Um, do we need more capability? What might that capability look like? And so there's been an enormous amount of thought uh, that's gone into that. It didn't just magically appear. It didn't just magically get fielded, and it doesn't magically work. Right. But I will say, uh, you know, one of one of the perspectives that I brought with that to that conversation and some of the points you hit on about size and everything else, and I think Gene would probably agree possibly with me, I think that even at those times, the technology that was available and the price points uh, that these systems were being sold for uh, I had this idea uh, then of a, you know, semi-disposable, man-portable system where, you know, if you crashed it, big deal, you pull another one out of the box, you just kept throwing these things in the air, and a price point to be more at $15,000 or $50,000 for a system instead of 250000 or $500,000 for a system, and, uh, you know, bring the capabilities along with that that are available from, say, the commercial market or now what people would call cuts. Gene, agree, disagree? Well, to a point. I mean, to me, back in my day, of course, I'm going to date myself when I start talking about Law's Rockets, but, uh, you know, a Law's Rocket was six grand. You know, one shot, you threw away the tube, and, and uh, the, the enemy, you know, ended up using them and recharging them. But, I mean, it was still six grand. Uh, you and I have discussed the, the $10,000 UA for the longest time, and uh, I think we're seeing it now. And I think we're going to get to that point. And, and John, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you've probably seen some of these smaller, semi-disposable UAs that are coming out that are going yep. to fit in that category. Yep. Well, and, and so Patrick, a good point, Gene. Patrick, the the other point here is there was there was an, uh, an earnest effort afoot to actually work through that. And, and actually, the the initial um, concept was let's take a X diameter PVC piece of PVC tubing, and then let's build a low-cost, right, COTS UAS around that and, and see what we can come up with. And mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 was, uh, it was tough because the technology, you know, some of the components just weren't ready. I mean, the data links were some of the biggest problems with these early small unmanned systems, and you'd have things just literally fly away. You'd be flying and just disappear. It's like, what? Where did it go? And then we had to start putting falcon trackers on them, you know, and, and it, you know, just because of that reason. And so, the, you know, processor speed and power and, 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 you know, energy density for batteries and, and you know, all of the, the things that, that are involved in making these small systems work really, really well because, let's face it, there's a, a, a zero defect essentially requirement for that military customer. Now, it's impossible to, you know, to build anything with zero defects. Everything is, right. is, is, is going to have some limitation to, at some extent, but there still is a, a really tall mountain to climb, right, when you're talking about putting these kinds of technologies into the field. And what I'll also say is, you know, at that time, keep in mind, what, what the era that I'm talking to you guys about was actually before the iPhone. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So some of the oh, listeners yeah. need to rem- need to understand that that I'm talking to you before there was an iPhone, right? Before there was a a, a real understanding of what lightweight mobile computing could actually mean. Um, it was still kind of everybody had their own thing, and you still kind of trying to figure it out. Most of the time, it was based around a BlackBerry. Right. Kind well, of closed system. But uh, it's funny you say that about the iPhone because I was the the first guy to catch an aerial fo- uh, photograph with an iPhone. We put one on a plane, flew it around, and grabbed that photo, and that story went around the world. So I mean, I was there for that. I, I have to say again, you know, and I'm not I'm not trying to dig my heels in, but I will say, and that's going to kind of lead into the next couple of segments that we're going to have to go into because it's a fascinating conversation. But I believe, uh, John, from what I've seen too, from coming from the commercial side. Uh, working for the Navy, working for the Army, um, I think what's missing is the the competition of the marketplace. And I think if the the FBO process or let's say the the military uh, purchasing process was a little bit, let's say, more of a level playing field, innovation would have happened faster with this technology. And you know that's kind of a closed loop that uh, well, that FBO process. Well, Patrick, Go that's a good point. You know, I think the I think the step back. You know, it, it's a fundamental biological truth that you know in our brain stems as people we're wired to uh, you know respond to incentives. People will respond when they have an incentive to respond. Otherwise, they'll conserve energy and they won't. Mm-hmm. And the the point is in that in that period of time, right? We weren't concerned about budget. Now, there was still a, a, a very um, diligent effort to make sure that every dollar uh, of, a, of taxpayers' money was stewarded correctly, but mm-hmm. it really was we were given permission, right, to run long, to try things, to break stuff, and they would, you know, and our organization would support us on that, and they would buy more. Um, so we weren't necessarily concerned about the low cost. We wanted the best possible capability. And I think the, the point was that was an incentive, right, economically for the military fo- technology providers in the industry to actually respond. Um, and I think that, you know, they, they base their, you know, financials and their projections, you know, so they can show that they can be profitable and sustainable and have predictable revenues. Well, when you talk about the commercial marketplace, it is wildly unpredictable, and it's, there's so much uncertainty that, you know, really all you can do is hope, right, that these existing military technology providers, I think they're hoping for a similar kind of, of business model, right, that they were working with with the military, but the mili- military budgets are, are shrinking, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty Right now, in the uh, economic, um, you know, state or health for the United States in present and uh, looking forward, so there's a heck of a lot of fear. And I think there's, on the one hand, I think there's a, a, a real desire to actually bring this industry to life and open up, uh, you know, the technology and, and the needs and the applications for lots of different commercial users. And I lump public safety and first responders into that commercial uh, category. But sure. I think on the one hand, but I think on the other hand, you know, there's there's a lot of fear, right, to say, well, if if you know if these things aren't profitable for, to produce, you know, what are we going to do? Well, you know, we could we could uh, argue that, and I and I definitely, again, you know, coming from the commercial world and working in the military uh, side of things, uh, the amount of money that is. Uh, Let's say spent on these these more legacy vendors or whatever else. Uh, you you could you could set up a pretty good shop with a lot of people and stay in business for a long time. But I don't you know I we're, we're gonna have to save some of that for another time because we're really running long. And I wanted to get into a couple other we have a couple other segments I wanted to talk about and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about these subjects. But I know you know you've been working for a while on your own projects uh, since being out of uh, the military, and when I was at the um, 
the unmanned systems North America here in Las Vegas. I saw the your your Mako flying in the the Lockheed Martin booth, and uh, you know I, I felt good. I like to see people succeed. I like to see when something good happens to people. So maybe you can you can tell us a little bit about uh, how that happened, and uh, you know you're you're one of the guys that was a little bit successful in moving your product forward. So let, maybe you can tell us about that. Well, thank you, Patrick. I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, uh, first of all, you know, I'm building a what I call a hybrid air system. And mm-hmm. I, uh, it's a lighter-than-air system. It's a helium-filled um, tethered aerostat. It's a rucksack portable or a man portable tethered aerostatic system. And really the purpose for this uh, platform is something that you can carry in a, a, ba- a box or a, a ruck and be able to elevate lightweight um, payloads, you know, in the two to four pound category, and you know, for the purposes of establishing communications, right, uh, in a time of need or disaster, um, uh, you can fly lightweight uh, ISR or you know, optical or electro optical uh, imaging systems, whether they're day or night, um, and then be able to provide that live uh, video down uh, to the ground. Now, I'm not building a tethered aerostat uh, because I don't know how to build anything else. Mm -hmm. I'm building it because I see a blatant need for it, a gap right now in the marketplace. And I am working with a military customer uh, to perfect a variant for them to actually take into the field and uh, evaluate uh, here in the spring, hopefully, um, and so far so good. But I think in the commercial application is really where I see the need and the opportunity. I am... I'm a realist here. I'm optimistic about many, many things, Patrick, but however, I'm a a pragmatist when it comes to the Federal Aviation Administration. And I know that lots and lots and lots of people um, are hopeful for, you know, kind of an unlocking uh, to occur, the quickening, right, as our bell would say, around integrating small and mid systems in the national airspace system. I'm sure... Right, the people are hopeful. We're hopeful that that would happen in 2012. It's not happening. I'm sure that there are still people that are holding out hope for 2013. There will be some movement there, but it's going to be uh, glacial, right? And it's going to be primarily for uh, first responders, public safety, with these emergency cola kind of things, with the smattering of access around kind of controlled environments, you know, in the United States, and that's already happening on the border. In other parts, but you know that larger opening or quickening of the of the marketplace. You know, I, I'm frankly not uh, particularly optimistic about it, and so that's why I decided to build this product. Uh, this right. product it actually flies on a a, a tether, right? And mm-hmm. it's therefore it's considered to be a stationary, uh, a tethered or moored balloon, and so it falls into a different category. It's not a heavier than air system that's flying around you know, uh, wherever it wants to go or wherever the operator sends it. So, you know, in some ways, I kind of have, have, have put my money where my mouth is, if you will, in that uh, this, this system is my acknowledgement of the importance of what I call low-altitude um, access for lightweight payloads and technologies. Um, but my, my acceptance, right, that there's still going to be a, a, a serious set of hurdles and obstacles that are that, that we're faced with and confronted with before the market really unlocks. And and what I uh, what I was leading into earlier is, frankly, this is um, the same situation that we're dealing with in, in trying to unlock the commercial space right now is something that I recognize occurred in the military. And what it is is you need to be able to have the right kind of energy. You need to be able to have the right kind of imagination. You need to be able to have the right kind of advocacy to drive the vision forward so and people will, con- will eventually catch it. You know, sometimes just saying the same thing over and over and over is actually what your job is to do. And, right. But you have to make sure that what you're saying <laughs> is credible and uh, is large enough, right, and inclusive enough to to in, incentivize enough people to get uh, involved and help make the changes that need to be made or 
push the effort forward. That's what right. I think we need. There's a period. There's a point right now where the military technology, you know, providers and the folks that were doing uh, this kind of bringing this to life in the military, they did a great job, right? But I don't think it necessarily just overlays on the domestic uh, space here in the United States, like uh, like putting a key in a lock and being able to unlock, well, this key works for the military, so we'll just use this key for the domestic market in the U.S. I think that's short-sighted, and I don't think it's big enough. Now, it mm-hmm. might be terrifying, right, to think that, well, wait a minute, what, we gotta do, it's going to be bigger? Oh, my gosh, I don't know if we can handle this. But I think... You know, unlocking the national airspace for small unmanned systems is akin to putting a man on the moon. Now, some might go, what's this guy talking about? I think that the industry rep- is, is representative and is big enough, right, as a byproduct of being able to, to truly integrate small unmanned systems into the national airspace that, that it really will create jobs and technologies and benefits in ways we can't even imagine yet, just like the Apollo space program. Mm-hmm. I concur with and, that. You know, the, the saddest part of this, though, Patrick, is we had a president that basically put us on notice and charged us that in a certain period of time we're going to do this and, and had that kind of leadership and vision. And I'm not knocking any particular political administration at all. But what I'm trying to say is the vision for this needs to be much bigger because the impact is much bigger. And instead of being afraid of it and shying away from it or trying to control it, it must be become transparent, and, and, and we should actually look at it as an opportunity instead of a threat. Well, I, and and you know what, you're you're preaching to the choir over here because I've said for a long time, you know, we we need to to make the the effort, the integration effort, let's say, more inclusive, more daylight, public process, and uh, you know, I get pushback everywhere. I get pushback from the FAA. I get pushback from, uh, let's say, allies or whatever. People are afraid of, you know, rattling the cage or, you know, upsetting the apple cart. Personally, (laughs) I don't don't really care, man. You know, you you were talking about integration in 2012, 2013, yada, yada. Me and Gene were back there in 2007 saying, hey, man, 60, 90 days, six months, we're going to be in the air. And, uh, you know, that never materialized. And Patrick, if you and I would have talked, uh, then I would have told you you were crazy. I would have said there is no way. It, you wouldn't have been the first one. I would have told you based on my own experience and knowledge. And you know, I have you know, one of one of my uh, roles eventually uh, in uh, Naval Special Warfare and SEAL Team. You know, was as a, an officer, assist, uh, assistant officer in charge of the UAS program for. Naval Special Warfare, and then I actually became the, kind of the airspace coordinator. So my job, you know, at some point it was, hey, John, the Wild West days are over. You can't just take this thing out and fly it anywhere. You have to put together a curriculum, and now you have to have some processes. Go figure out how to actually fly this thing legally. And so that, that set me off on a whole other path. And so I have a staff. I've been responsible for putting COAs in place uh, as a military member, and I've also actually successfully put COAs in place as a civilian. So I, I've got the firsthand experience with that uh, those processes, and they, it is possible. It's not impossible. It's happening all over the place, uh, but it's, it takes time, and it's, it's not scalable. It's not something that creates a healthy, vibrant industry. It creates a small niche, right, that has all kinds of issues and is problematic for people trying to enter the niche. The other point that I want to make with you, Patrick, is that, I, you know, I listen to you uh, when I talk and you kind of counter and I and I, I can hear it in your voice, man. I can see, I feel for you. It sounds like you're frustrated, you're fed up, you're burnt out, you're tired. And I guarantee there are people out there, small business owners, inventors, even investors and entrepreneurs that are scratching their heads going, golly, this is not going the way we thought it was going to go. And uh, all I can that. All, all I can say, all I can say to you guys is, now is not the time, right? To, you know, there's an emotional strength that has got to be, it's got to be visible. It's got to happen. People have to have the courage to keep moving. And what I would say right now is, now is not the time for people to entrench themselves 
to take these positions and start poking people in the eye. I think there needs to be a clearing, if you will. I think I've got some issues with some of the folks, right, and some of these uh, trade associations that have been espousing happy talk, right, for the past couple of years, and, 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 I, don't, and I like these people. I actually respect them, and I appreciate what they're doing, but I do think that it's, it's, it's got to a point where it's kind of a status quo, go along, this old process will be just laid over this new process, and I completely disagree, and I think that, you know, there needs to be a, a clearing with those small business owners and those in, uh, investors in those small businesses and those entrepreneurs and those innovators who are kind of going, what happened? I thought I was going to, I thought this was going to work, and I don't know what to do, and I'm going to go find work, and this and that and the other. And I think there needs to be, there needs to be a, a resetting, there needs to be a rebalancing, in the establishing the vision, establishing the mandate, and I think we need to basically agree, right, that, you know, there's some things that everybody's learned here along the way, and we're going to recommit, and we're going to make the vision bigger, and we're going to decide that we are determined to make this work and make it happen. Period. Well, and, and you're, you know, Brother John, you're preaching to the choir over here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all in on that. But I, I, what I see in the airspace integration effort, and I've seen it for a while, and it makes me popular with lots of folks here, but what I'm seeing is pretty typical, uh, let's say, lawmaking at the federal level, where the consultants are in there. And, you know, it reminds me of a, a saying about, uh, you know, a good parasite doesn't kill the host, Okay. And you got some people there. There, we we've moved into a ten-year-plus uh, effort where people are riding this as a career. Do you just yeah. keep pushing the peanut along? Uh, we're, well, we're off-ramping into uh, private sector jobs. We're, you know, consulting, or we're we're making this something. Hey, you know, uh, give me some well, more money. It, I can do this. It, but people are it, afraid it, to really address the issues because the well, issues it, aren't that big. I mean, there well, is a it, it, Here's, here, let me just make a comment. There's, an, there's a bias orientation right now that, frankly, is not, is not uh, beneficial or healthy for the small and man systems space. And that bias right now, it's an institutional bias, and I'm frankly not sure how it happened. But there, and I think I can remember back when, it's, you know, when we started kind of dealing with these small uh, drones when I was in SEAL team, you know, it was like, hey, John's an operator. He's excited about it. He's using it. But we need to actually bring an aviator in to help him because this thing's flying around, right? And I, I think that's kind of what happened along the way. It's like, hey, this is a small thing flying around. We've got to get the aviation community involved. And I'm not saying they don't need to be involved, but I'm not sure they need that the FAA has to have proponency on something that's 4.4 pounds or smaller. I just well, don't, I don't agree with that. And I think that that institutional bias, right, that's kind of being, you know, created here in the commercial market space is, is putting the same kind of, of requirements and, frankly, risk, uh, zero, you know, zero tolerance for any kind of risk uh, requirements on top of a small unmanned system that, let's face it, Patrick, there is no small unmanned system that it can even meet the airworthiness certification requirements. I'm not even no. sure if a large unmanned system has actually met them or all of them have been waived. No, no. And, you know, the other thing I keep saying, it was a good point someone else had made, you know, is uh, certified aircraft don't crash, you know. You know, we could we could go round and round on this, but I will say, you know, that uh, you know, even the, the the current arc that's going on, there's no small business representation. The FAA doesn't take it serious. They listen to the same vendors. It's you know, oh look, let's get these same vendors in here to tell us what we need to do. You know, it, it, the game is rigged. It is really rigged. And uh, you know, until we um, have some accountability well, and small business I, get in there, you know, it, it's going to be uh, an issue because. You have uh, banned I, I, aviation I, I, people. I, Go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I personally, I think this latest um, basically suspension by the FAA of uh, the six-site selection process for the mass integration effort, I personally believe that you, know, you, you, can't, you can't pretty this one up. Like, you're going to have to put lipstick on this pig. And, and I think there's a lot of people that are that saying, hey, the happy talk ain't working anymore, folks. We've got to have a family meeting, a come-to-Jesus come meeting, as uh, one of my old platoon chiefs used to say, and, uh, and get clear on this and, uh, and then figure out what to do forward. Because I, I do think 
that um, there's there's going to be, I think there's small unmanned systems segment, right, in a space, and I think they're saying, you know, they're probably asking the question, why are we being lumped into the rest of this mess, right? There might need to be a business-as-usual process for the large systems, but why are we getting basically lumped into this and, and being prevented from entering the marketplace? And I do think there's going to be uh, an accounting that's going to have to be have to have, be had. I think there are questions that have to be asked. Now, whether or not those questions come to light, whether those issues are brought to light or just covered up uh, or hidden away or tucked away quietly, that's a, that's a whole other question. And really, that's going to hinge on not technology. That's going to hinge on people and courage and willingness. Uh, I personally, my belief, Patrick, is there shouldn't be six sites hidden in secrecy of where the heck they are. I don't know where they are. Uh, right. You know, where are these six sites, and why is the process being held in secrecy? I think it needs to be a fully transparent process, and why six? Why not 50? Why shouldn't every state have its own site? And if you don't have enough staff at the FAA, then the FAA is not the right organization. Well, and I agree with a lot of that. Look, we got 15 seconds left. This was a good conversation. We'll have to have you back next year. I want to thank the podcast episode sponsor, Hood Technology, the makers of the only launcher I use for the Cracker Barrel. You can check that picture out at our homepage. Anyway, hoodtech.com. Check them out. Thanks, John. Thanks, Gene. Thank and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.